So, good morning. So, today's our first full day of the retreat, and it will be a day of cultivating some quietude and a sense of arriving, and this is a transition process into arriving. Um, I often feel that the first full day of a retreat is in many ways the most important day of a retreat. Because it's almost as if we we kind of set the tone inwardly. For all the days that follow, we set the intentions inwardly for all the days that follow. So even though you may arrive and you may be juggling tiredness or restlessness or inner busyness, I think really to see this is where we begin to set the tone of our retreat, in the midst of all of this not when somehow life goes away. I often am minded to reflect on on the the kind of time when the, the Buddha practiced, understood, and began to really lay out this framework of understanding. And as we can imagine, in India 2,500 years ago, life was probably very, very difficult for the majority of people, just getting through a day, just surviving. And I think the many of the sort of religious or spiritual practices at the time recognized that difficulty and were often oriented around, how do we get out of this? How do we get out? of this difficulty? How do we get out of this life that seems so unworkable? So there was a lot of emphasis upon transcendence, upon getting out, upon somehow treating life with everything it brings as a kind of obstacle, a problem to get over, to get away from. And although we can look at this as a historical story, I I think there's a certain timelessness to the human mind, isn't there? that often our first response to the difficult, our first response to discomfort, our first response to that that doesn't seem to have a solution is, you know, how do we get away from this? How do we get out of it? How do we overcome it? I think in many ways it is why the Buddha was so very radical in his time and perhaps radical in our time too, to suggest there may be another pathway for us to follow another pathway for us to cultivate, which is not about getting over or fixing or making our life go away, but focused upon understanding and understanding it's possible for us to cultivate in the midst of all of this a way of being present, a way of being with our life that is imbued with compassion, imbued with kindness, imbued with the willingness to understand and the willingness to meet not only our life but to meet all the moments in our life, no matter how much, how they are. And in a way, this is really the foundation of the Satipatthana Sutta that I mentioned last night, which is the basis of insight meditation, the basis of contemporary mindfulness practices. It is, instead of following that pathway to turn away from, to cultivate the pathway of turning towards, 
turning towards, finding that willingness. Now, this is no easy task. You know, we have often quite well-developed strategic skills of avoidance. Um, you know, sometimes they're lifelong practices that we have a tremendous amount of expertise in. So this is no easy practice for us to begin to, to, to walk that pathway of turning towards. And one of the translations, you will hear us use this word sati a great deal, usually translated as mindfulness, and John will go into this much more in his talk this evening. But of course that's a sort of one-dimensional translation of this word sati. One of the dimensions of this word sati, often translated as mindfulness, is remembering. And there are a few things that I would really encourage you to remember as we begin our practice today. And then one of the really key aspects to remember is attitude. Attitude. How the attitude we bring to our sitting, the attitude we bring to our walking. You know, there's a tennis player I very much admire who was once asked about the secret of his success, and he called it the three P's patience, perseverance, and perspiration. I'm hoping we don't need to do the perspiration part here, but the patience and perseverance is really central in this practice. And willingness to be patient with ourselves, to be patient with all the moments of forgetfulness, bearing in mind that remembering our sati is the antidote to forgetfulness. Because just as forgetfulness is the foundation for impulse, for reactivity, for habit, remembering is the foundation, or sati is the foundation of clear intention, of a sense of capacity, and of all of the very lovely qualities of heart and mind that we cultivate in this practice. So being patient with moments of forgetfulness, remembering that capacity to begin again. I don't think after I don't think it's helpful to think about maintaining mindfulness or maintaining attention. We learn to renew intention and having that perseverance to to be very steady with that. I think the attitude of sincerity, dedication, it's what brings you here. Hmm? That, that real genuine willingness to understand, the genuine willingness to, to follow the pathways of transformation. And sincerity is really important. That dedication is really important. You know, we, we see how much our lives can be governed by, by habit and by distractedness and by forgetfulness. Ah, remembering to keep showing up no matter how it is. But also knowing there's a difference between that sincerity and commitment and the kind of over-earnestness that I sometimes see. I think of it as almost being the near enemy of sincerity and commitment is this over-earnestness. You know, I've got this one precious week. I need to get everything out of it. You know, I'm going to really work hard. You know, please, meditative practice is not work. (laughs) It's cultivation. 
you know, but that over-earnestness can bring at times a sort of grimness to our practice, you know, I'm showing up for another bout on the cushion, you know, or I'm showing up for another 45 minutes of walking, you know, and sometimes you feel it etched in your body, that kind of over-earnestness, which is a, it has often an underlying agenda of a kind of insistence and things need to be a certain way and a kind of self-measuring almost. So finding that, that, you know, really staying clear and close to that element of sincerity, commitment, perseverance, without falling into that idea of work. A retreat is not a project. No, uh, you, some of you will get certificates at the end. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> huh? But actually, all you need to do to get that certificate is make it through to Saturday, you know. We're not going to sort of test you, you know, and test your levels of insight. And please don't be testing yourself. Please don't be testing yourself. Remembering the attitudes of befriending, of kindness. We're often so well-skilled in the practices of harshness and self-judgment and comparing. Remember that attitude of, of befriending what is, of curiosity. A, a one friend of mine refers to it as an affectionate curiosity, which I think is this sort of way of being present. Yes, life does not have to be perfect. Hmm? The body does not have to be perfect. The mind does not have to be perfect. But I'm able to meet this. The first way of establishing mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta is in the body. This should not surprise us. This is our often our primary place of dissociation, our primary place of disconnection, where the mind lives in one place and the body lives in another. So in the Satipatthana, the biggest part of this teaching, the biggest part of this discourse, also, I might say, in contemporary mindfulness, it's the biggest emphasis in the teaching, isn't it, about how to inhabit the body. Because when we inhabit the body, we inhabit the moment. When we inhabit the body, we inhabit our life. And I really encourage you to really explore that during the day, the moments when the mind-body split is occurring. Where are we? Where are we in those moments? Often lost in thoughts about the past, lost in thoughts about the future, lost in speculation or idea or narrative. And that sense of being able to return to the body Always here, standing, touching, breathing, sensing, the simplicity of that. Not, it's never a dismissiveness of the mind, it's never a dismissiveness of the heart, it's never a dismissiveness of all that we learn about what the mind and heart does. But this is our training ground, this is where we establish simplicity, establish that sense of connectedness, establish that, that sense of almost relinquishing that habit of being lost. So beginning to befriend the body, beginning to inhabit the body, whether sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, all the moments of our life, our body is here. Breathing, sensing, learning to make that our home of sati, our home of mindfulness. 
Now it's even more specific in the Satipatthana Sutta as we begin the practice. It's beginning to establish mindfulness within the body of the breathing, within the body of the breath. Now it's very important here to be careful about this because whenever we, I find that whenever in meditation practice we suggest a kind of anchor or a kind of focus of attention, how easily the mind jumps into this being a concentration practice. This is not a concentration practice, the way that mindfulness of breathing is used in Satipatthana. It's an insight practice. So it is learning to befriend, to establish mindfulness within the body breathing as an aspect, a clear, accessible aspect of the life of the body. But it is not a defensive mindfulness. It is not like, I'm going to see how many breaths in a row I get, and I'm going to force my attention, you know, every moment away from the breath is somehow a mistake. This is not the nature of our experience in life, is it? There is mindfulness of breathing, something else becomes more predominant, a sound, a thought, a body sensation. The attention is drawn to that. But we bring that same simplicity into that moment, to know a thought is a thought, a sound is a sound, and then to be able to return. So it's not developing this kind of defensive mindfulness. It's developing a receptive mindfulness, receptive to the body breathing, receptive to those moments of departure, being able to return and to have the felt sense of the body breathing. So it's not about watching the breath. (coughs) It's not about establishing some remote position of the observer or the breather but to actually bring mindfulness into the breathing process and to feel that from within the body as a process. Cultivating a calm abiding. When the Buddha gives the instruction of mindfulness of breathing, (coughs) he talks about breathing in, calming the body, breathing in, calming the mind, breathing in, calming the agitations developing that capacity for calm abiding. Okay, so finding one's seat, one's posture. just sensing the body of the moment, how it is to sit, feeling the uprightness of your back and neck, having an intentional posture, a body of wakefulness, a body of balance. Mindful of the life of your body, changing landscape of sensation, 
the sounds that come and go, the thoughts that arise and pass. And sensing the body breathing, a moment-to-moment movement, a process. Sensing what it is to gather, to collect your attentiveness in the midst of all things and to establish mindfulness within the body, within the body breathing.
Just being mindful of where your attention is resting in this moment and the quality of that attentiveness. Being able in moments of being lost to remember, to renew the intention, to be present, awake, sensing the life of the body, the life of the body breathing.
the rhythm of formal practice on a retreat like this is really the alternation between periods of sitting and periods of walking. And in many ways, these support each other. These sitting and walking meditation practices, they support each other. And really, it's the combined rhythm of them that has the power to deepen our practice, to deepen qualities of mindfulness, of waking up. So we really... uh, strongly invite and encourage you to commit as wholeheartedly to the periods of walking practice as you do to the periods of sitting practice. And really let the combination of these practices really carry you into the retreat. And in many ways, the walking practice um, stands midway between the stillness and the gatheredness of sitting meditation and the more free-form movement and informal, if you like, practice at other times of day during the retreat. (coughs) And the walking period really starts from the moment of deciding to get up and go and find your walking path. So really encouraging you to have this sense of uh, the whole period of time as practice and as an opportunity really to embody the intention to be here and to practice. Because there are more choice points in the walking, aren't there? You know, there are more choice points and, and other impulses may intrude upon the sense of intention to find your walking path and do the practice. And it really is an opportunity in a very real way to practice living a more intentional life. You know, where you really have this sense of, okay, walking. And uh, it's very helpful to, to find a walking path as a form for that intention, as a, if you like, a container for that intention. So different traditions do walking meditation in different ways, but in this tradition and practice, there is the invitation to find a path of 10 to 15 paces, and really a path that has a clear beginning and a clear, well, if you like, has two ends to it. And just to feel that sense of containment, to feel that sense of support that the form gives to the intention and to the attention. And this is a place that has uh, much provision for walking meditation. So you probably have already seen there are many spaces that we can use for this practice. And... uh, just would invite you to to find a space. You don't have to audition them all, you know. You just find one that really uh, presents itself. And and obviously, one way you can um, walk without crossing somebody else's path. And 
the beginning of the formal practice is really standing, standing at one end of the path and really arriving in that moment, in that place, in that intention to be present. And I find it very helpful in the practice to have a little focusing question like, how does it feel to stand? And then, how does it feel to walk? And to let that sort of question be the, the, uh, what, the, the means of really kindling a, 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 an interest, an aliveness of interest in this moment's experience. And as we do the walking practice, it's helpful to to have this sense of of curiosity and almost a certain sense of play or experiment. John spoke last night about the sense of the laboratory. But, But just to be interested in, okay, what helps to keep the attention engaged? And you may like to play with the variables of pace and the placing of attention in the body. So just exploring pace. What pace right now helps to keep the attention engaged? Helps to make this alive, interesting, sort of compelling for the attention. It may be that initially an ordinary walking pace really supports that. But you may notice that after a while, slowing down becoming more attentive to the more subtle movement of walking helps to invoke this sense of interest, this curiosity. So playing with the pace, there's no correct pace. It's not somehow uh, that you you have to go slowly. Really, it's about what makes this interesting. What helps me to feel the walking with presence, with interest, with a befriending of the experience. So pace, one variable to play with. And, and the other, this placing of the attention. You know, you could just place the attention in the soles of the feet. You know, really being interested in the pressure, the changes of pressure moment by moment, the tingling fuzziness of feet. Or you may find, okay, I'm going to open the attention up a little bit and include the legs or the lower half of the body or the whole body. So really having this sense of, of play, of experiment, all in the, uh, all shaped by the intention to be present, to make the practice alive, to make the practice something that engages the interest. So zooming in or zooming out (laughs) and playing with that. And helpful also I, I find to have a sense of foreground and background. So in the foreground, the sensations of the feet. In the background, everything else, you know, the rest of the body, the sounds, the sights, the thoughts, the mind states, that come and go. 
So it's not, as Christina's saying, a sort of exclusive trying to push experience away because there will be more impingement in walking than when we're in the seclusion of sitting, maybe with the eyes closed. There's more sights and sounds that will present themselves. So foreground and background and and the practice becomes one of allowing the, the place or the arena of awareness that you've chosen, the feet, the legs, the whole body, to keep re-emerging into the foreground of the awareness as you do that. And of course, as you begin to walk and you walk along your path, you may notice, oh, the attention has gone. (laughs) And that's a moment for stopping, you know, a moment for perhaps gathering the attention again, standing for a few moments. And then coming to the end of your path and again pausing. Mindfulness of standing. How does it feel to turn around? So letting that be interesting. You know, letting that be something that engages your interest. And again, pausing. And then when you're ready, walking. So really this is, as we know, a, a, not a practice about trying to get somewhere else. It's a practice, you know, when we normally walk, we're, we're walking to some other destination. And of course, what we're doing in walking practice is walking to be here. So just having that sense that each moment of this practice of walking is equally valuable, is equally worthy of interest, investigation, befriending, allowing, renewing intention moment by moment. So we have now some time for the walking practice and uh, really invite you as you make the transition and find a path just to value each moment of this experience. Bring the same interest, the same curiosity, the same befriending to it. So I hope you can enjoy this walking period. (laughs) 